Hello and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives. I'm Nick Bastow. In this program, we're going to be looking at the use of co-design principles in implementing some of the interim recommendations of the Royal Commission into Mental Health. In theory, co-design's a relatively simple idea. Bring together different groups of people, citizens and stakeholders, to design new products, services and policies. In practice, it's much harder because it's a process of collaboration that depends on people bringing a participatory mindset, having a genuine strategy of inclusion and building consensus amongst people whose experiences and perspectives can often be very different. And like any really substantive change process, thinking about co-design means thinking about power, who has it and who lacks it. Victoria's Royal Commission into Mental Health, which was chaired by former IPA National President Penny Armitage, was a huge undertaking. Over two years, it considered more than 3,500 submissions about the reform of a mental health system that, in the words of the Victorian Premier, was broken. The Commission's final report, released in February 2021, included more than 65 recommendations that in their description weren't about filling in potholes in the service delivery road, but building a whole new road. Central to its findings were the need to incorporate system design thinking into mental health services and overturning the power imbalance between consumers of mental health services and those who design and deliver those services. This discussion explores the role that co-design played in implementing seven of the nine interim recommendations from the Royal Commission. And like any good co-design process, it's a discussion that brings together people from a range of different perspectives. Paul Flowerdew is the Director of the Transformation Strategy and Program Management Office in the Mental Health and Wellbeing Division of the Victorian Department of Health. His division helped lead the department's response to the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Paul works with Michelle Swan, who's the Principal Advisor for Family Carer Lived Experience at the Mental Health and Wellbeing Division of the department. Michelle's particular focus is in embedding the lived experience of families, carers and supporters in the reform processes that are flowing from the recommendations of the Royal Commission. And Karen Gallagher and Alex Mashevelis are co-design practitioners at Today, one of Australia's leading social impact agencies which uses design and technology to make change happen at pace and at scale. Today was selected by the department to help provide and develop co-design capacity in the department's organisational response to the recommendations of the Royal Commission. But before we got into a discussion about how co-design ideas have been put into practice, I began by asking Karen Gallagher to step back and talk about the problems that co-design as a process tries to overcome. So I think I might start by answering uh, the, second, the second question first. So people use government services and or government funded or subsidised services every day uh, from healthcare to public transport. And when they don't, or when they don't have access to those services, when they don't exist, they, they suffer from this. And if the service isn't delivering on their needs, um, that can actually, you know, cause problems or um, make, make their current situation uh, worse. So, you know, they're actually experts at having that experience and um, we can really learn from them. And if the service isn't working for them, they're the best people to ask. But unfortunately, historically, they haven't really been asked and everything's been designed and implemented by government and by healthcare providers and by other, by other organisations for people and not with them. And even if that's been done with the best of intentions, 
by not asking, you're not really knowing for sure whether or not you're meeting people's needs. So it's really not surprising that as a result, whole systems such as our health and mental health systems aren't always meeting consumers and families and carers' needs because they weren't asked and they weren't included in the design of the solutions. So that's what co-design really aims to solve. Uh, people with lived experience of the problem must be involved in designing the solution if we really want to deliver the right solutions and then meet their health and wellbeing outcomes. So now back to your first question, co-design is a process that aims to bring people's expertise together. So service providers and government alongside people with lived experience to design and implement uh, better solutions. And whether that's a service or a policy or a website, you know, even potentially a conversation between a clinician and a person. So critically co-design uh, aims to overcome a power imbalance that's historical and system systemic. And as Mosh, um, I guess we'll talk about it, it's really about creating that safe and genuine space to bring different types of expertise together so that they can design together and not just talk, and then they can make decisions together about what works and what should be implemented. Paul, you've worked across a really wide range of government departments in your career, primary industries, jobs, tertiary education, place-based initiatives, and now mental health reform. Given that long experience, I guess, in public policy, what attracts you to the idea of co-design as a public servant? I think co-design's a um, it's a really interesting way of doing government. I think I've had a really um, fantastic journey going through a lot of different public policy spaces, and it's given me the chance to learn different things about policy and and about government and how we do things. Um, and I think I've probably been on a bit of a personal journey myself through that process. I certainly started out with the with the expectation that I was an expert, that I was a policy expert and that I came there to solve problems and that it was important for me to be the expert in the room when we were solving those and to, you know, help inform decision makers where they were the ones making the decisions. Um, I also sort of have seen the organisation of government work in different ways in different places over time. So it can be either a supporter of change, but it can also be an, an inhibitor of change itself. So some of the things that we are trying to change are the way that government itself works. And I think that led me on to what, what I think has been a really articulate way of rethinking how government works, which comes from the centre of policy impact, which is we're really in many instances trying to solve complex problems inside government. So part of the solution for us is finding the right way to solve those complex problems. And the other insights that go along with that are that, that, that relationships are really important in how we do our work um, and understanding other people, how we move forwards um, in understanding different perspectives and ways of understanding a, a problem and hence a solution is really important. And the way that we apply that then is through experimentation and iteration in the ways that we do things as well, so that there's a constant learning environment through what we do. And I think that's really true in complex problems, particularly because the solutions themselves aren't, aren't obvious and can't be determined outside of the implementation process that they go through. So I think co-design sits really neatly inside those kinds of perceptions about how you can see problems differently from inside government. Um, and how you can behave a little bit more differently as a government in solving some of those problems. And that means getting involved, as Karen said, making sure that the users of the problems are part of the design experience, making sure that you understand as things are 
are implemented and actually go into practice that they are meeting those needs. And if they're not, what needs to change as a result? You mentioned there this idea of the the sense that co-design ultimately involves the users of services. Um, I guess the question sort of is the the users of services can be a very big group and very different sorts of groups. There's um, within mental health services anyway, there's um, practitioners, there's patients, there's family support. Presumably one of the challenges in co-design is who are the groups that you're bringing together? Um, Paul and Karen, I'm interested in your sense of who's in the groups that are brought together because presumably different people have very different perspectives on what a service problem actually is or what a service improvement would be. It is actually part, you know, one part of co-design is is what we call co-planning and it really is really thinking about who needs to be in the co-design process and who needs to be involved in the team. And, and, and obviously, and firstly, people with lived experience um, need to be involved and making sure that they have, um, I guess, you know, a potentially recent experience or relevant experience to that. And, and when we get into these um, quite complex spaces, um, you know, someone that may have experienced homelessness is not someone that may have gone to a GP for their mental health care plan. So we really need to think about um, how they, what, what experience they bring to that, um, that forum. I, I guess the other thing as well, just to um, clarify as well, is that in that instance, it it may be that they might have used that service, but when we talk about other parts, potentially other parts of the care team, so um, carers, carers may not be the direct user of that service, but they have direct experience with supporting that person through that process. So we need to think about as well, who else might this problem be affecting? What role might they play in designing a better experience um, for them, for them, their family members and um and then we also think about who else is going to be involved in delivering that service and changing that service. So, for example, um, who's the service provider? Who is that going to be? Is that a frontline worker? Um, have they got the most experience to bring? It could be a peer worker. Um, it could be a psychologist. It could be, um, if it's a policy piece of work, it could be an administration person. So I think it really depends on the problem you're trying to solve and the best people um, to bring into the room to solve that together. And you also mentioned, you know, that can have very different views. Um, and that is probably one thing that you do need to do through co-design is you do need to create a safe space. And often people really do share the same values is that they want to achieve the, the greatest outcome for, for the person. Um, and that really is a uniting factor. Um, but where there is conflict and also where there's an imbalance of power, that's really, I guess, the skill of co-design is being able to make sure that you can give people the opportunity to, to talk, for people to feel listened to. And also um, conflict can actually, well managed, it can actually help with innovation and help to create new ideas. I think that was uh, pretty comprehensive. I mean, I think the idea is that there's a diversity across people that are either impacted by the change or people that are important in delivering some of the change on the way through as well. Um, and appreciating that there are different forms of expertise that are brought into the room um, and making sure that you can build the right environment in the room so that there is the respect and appreciation of the value of those different um, forms of expertise that are there. So I think that's that's really important to have there. I mean, I think it's important that everybody who's participating needs to both be a sharer and a listener and a learner through the process as well. So it's not a good place for people to just come in and have have a viewpoint and really push that viewpoint as being the, the goal of their participation. It really does need to be a space where people can sort of listen and understand each other as they collaborate in sort of finding some of the solutions. 
Paul, you must have seen many attempts by government to engage or consult with the users of government services and stakeholder groups before and then use those consultations to drive system reform. It's a very kind of well-trodden public policy sort of path. But what's been your experience of how well those traditional engagement processes work with marginalised or vulnerable groups? I think government's always aware of the importance of understanding diverse perspectives and sort of um, being able to respond to the needs of different groups on the way through. So the, the, the effort and the intent has always been there, but sometimes the capability and the processes to support it perhaps haven't been. Um, I'll, I'll give you a very generalised story that sort of tells how this sort of did play out, and I'll keep it general so it's not traceable back anywhere. But I was working in an area where we wanted to get some regional input into a policy area and we wanted diverse regional input through through a forum as to what was going forwards. So we wanted to get representative from the agriculture sector, from the business sector, from the health sector, education sector, so really diverse views. And we wanted to capture some diversity as well. So make sure there was Aboriginal representatives and people from sort of cold backgrounds as well. So to understand that sort of regional context. Um, and the way that we did that was using the networks of people that sort of lived in the areas um, there themselves. But we also wanted to get a youth representative too. Um, and so as we were sort of looking through the, the invitees to who was coming along, we sort of went through and went, we really don't have youth represented here. So we had a bit of a discussion about what youth represented um, and came to a conclusion, rightly or wrongly, that youth was probably someone under 30. Um, and so we had a bit of a discussion about that. Didn't really, couldn't really identify anyone on our list that sort of had that under 30 representative. So we thought maybe under 35 might be youth. Um, and we weren't convinced that we could actually hit that under 35 uh, uh, target either. And in the end, someone re recommended someone else that they, they knew in the area. And they said, no, that person's, that person's over 40. And they went, yeah, but they look young. <laughs> um, and so that's sort of, you know, not having access to the networks can really sort of impede your ability to do some of those things. And I think that's what we're learning through some of this co-design work as well, is we need to have different pathways of outreach to bring diverse and marginalised groups in particularly. Um, so, again, the different ways of, of government doing it in the past, more or less successful depending on, on how we've gone about it. But certainly... Uh, general approaches just to information and consultation are going to fall short from that perspective. Alex, from a design specialist perspective, how do co-design processes have to adapt or evolve when the groups you want to engage with aren't well-resourced or when they don't find the engagement process easy? It's a really interesting question um, because as we know in co-design, groups are often changing or evolving all the time and, and dynamics, group dynamics change and shift every time we have someone come or leave the group. And that often happens throughout a co-design process um, because, you know, humans, those things happen. And, and so I think we do have to kind of understand like, how do we, how do we continue to build relationships with people? And I think, I think first and foremost, before I answer the kind of second part of that question, I think really it's about establishing relationships and really spending the time to, to really understand what are people what what are people getting out of this process? What is the value that they're bringing? What are they contributing and really being a part of? And how are they partnering in this process? And I think that's the first conversation that has to be had. And and getting to know people at a human level before even starting to think about 
how do we just how do we go and design something and that i think that's the first piece and that has to continue to happen if you have new people step in um the group has to shift and understand and learn through that but i i also think from a pragmatic perspective when we're thinking about if things aren't well resourced or we're finding it you know we aren't we haven't got the engagement that we're looking for i think it's starting to look at okay we started to get a really good understanding from a design perspective of what it is that we're learning and what we're building and creating here but i think the thing that we can always do is if there are gaps in our understanding or our knowledge or in our design experience we can go out to different groups we can go out to different people doesn't mean that co-design has to stop at the end of three workshops we can continue to evolve uh, and, and that can be a journey that happens and should be happening consistently. Co-design should be something and, and design should be something that we're con- con- constantly evolving and iterating on. And I think for us, if if we're not quite, you know, we're feeling like as a group we need to bring more perspectives in, then we can go out and do that. And it's about, how, well, how do we go about that? And we always have constraints, but I think it's about being smart about how you do that. And um, there's always ways around them. And it's just thinking creatively about that and just thinking human and people first. One of the groups that hasn't always found traditional engagement and consultation systems easy uh, families, carers and supporters of people with mental health issues. Michelle, part of your experience is in understanding the role that supporters play in the healthcare and mental health care systems. It, it can be easy to overlook the importance of those people in the way that public health systems work and function. But lots of our systems, in fact, really depend on the involvement and the labour of families, carers and supporters. As someone with a with a deep involvement in that those communities, what attracts you to the ideas behind co-design? Firstly, I'd just like to say that co-design, when it's done well, challenges existing power structures. Co-design assists us to test assumptions that are uh, consistently made by decision makers. Co-design allows for the exploration of issues from server user perspectives and uh, the development of their deeper interests and needs. One of the clear findings from the Royal Commission was that often families, carers and supporters feel invisible in the system and co-design allows us to challenge that and provide a voice to carers. Let's look at some of the, a practical example of how co-design ha- has worked in practice. And, and as Michelle said, Today's been working with Mental Health Reform Victoria, who are tasked to deliver seven of the nine recommendations made by the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. Using co-design in that context is probably going to be a big challenge because you're trying to create genuine engagement and shared decision-making with very diverse and potentially vulnerable groups of consumers and carers, as well as service providers and professionals. Paul, I'm wondering if you can give us, I suppose, a helicopter-level view of just what those seven recommendations are and what they aim to change in the way that mental health services are delivered in Victoria. Yeah, so the the Victoria's Royal Commission into our, our mental health services has now sort of released its final report. So Mental Health Reform Victoria itself was one of the recommendations of the interim report. Um And I think the idea of releasing an interim report by a Royal Commission is a really great idea because if you're looking at doing sort of really deep systems change, a lot of those areas have very long lead times. Um, And if you've done a little bit of discovery work, uh, you start to get an idea of where there are some certain activities that that definitely needs to take place as part of those future reforms. Um, so our Royal Commission released that interim report with some of those areas. So things that needed a bit of a build up, uh, 
to be part of the broader reforms that we're now a part of. So with the final report being delivered last year, we have an extra 65 recommendations on top of the initial nine. Um, but within those, uh, those nine recommendations, one of which was establishing MERV, there were a range of different things that it tried to look at in terms of what do we need from future infrastructure for acute beds and how should those beds sort of look or um, serve people. Uh, areas around workforce readiness and building lived experience workforces, support for Aboriginal social and emotional well-being, um, and then some work in suicide prevention as well. There's, a, there's another recommendation on, on some institutional change too. But with all of these areas, not only did they need a little bit of extra preparation work before the broader reform started to come through, the interim report really gave us the opportunity to focus in um, in a really determined way on how we were going to do those reforms. And I think that was probably one of the greatest opportunities that we had because seven reforms are easier to manage than 65 or seven recommendations. Um, and even though it was a very fast paced environment that we were in, and I'm sure Michelle can attest to it as well, um, it, it still gave us the opportunity to focus in on some of the things that we were doing and particularly to, to learn about how we were going to do some of that. And so for me, that's the, the big benefit that came from it is we uh, recognised the role that co-design needed to play and then we were able to learn a little bit about how we would go about doing that. Alex and Karen, from today's perspective, what have been some of the challenges of using a co-design approach in this sort of policy space? What are some of the strategies that you you develop help to develop to make co-design possible in, in working in mental health reform? I thought about this before and I feel like I work in a design agency when I say it's three C's. So I think culture and capability and confidence. So one of the things that was, you know, it's come up a couple of times in this conversation already. So that decision making is currently there's an imbalance in that that power and that that process you know there's a minister and then there's you know there's levels of government and then the service is implemented and then finally the person experiences that possibly years later so you know there's that culture is in place um paul mentioned uh, sorry the culture of that system is in place and um paul mentioned as well you know there's that expectation of being an expert you know like if someone asks you at the moment what's the answer you're like well here's the answer so you know co-design actually says well i don't know the answer i've got to go and get other people to come into a room and help design the answer to that. And so it's a really different cultural approach to, to move from the current existing system in, in government and, in, um, and in, in the whole healthcare system and mental health system to one where all of these providers need to put aside expertise and, and take on and learn a whole new way of behaving. Um, and so that then comes to that capability. And I think capability does start with the confidence to actually say, okay, I'm going to have to accept moving from an expert mindset to, a, to one of curiosity and open-mindedness and, um, and unlearn uh, or learn new things. So I think that's probably one of the key strategies we've really taken in working with a department is to, I guess, recognise that um, and really include a really um, 
a stage of our projects which we we do call co-planning so we actually work with the department and with people with lived experience to look at what are we going to be doing in co-design we have a process of things that we go through to really build that confidence and the, and the knowledge and the capability and we also work with those with team members as well um, within the department to look at what is the opportunity for learning um, how to how to shift into a more participatory mindset so I, I guess that's probably um, something I think from a, a you know, from working with government and shifting a system, I think it's really key. And I think it needs to shift, that also needs to then shift into the system itself. And that's what's really good about the work we're doing with the department is that when service providers come into a co-design room and they have a great experience, they go, oh, okay, this is possible. And that actually didn't feel bad. And I might take that back to my organization. And we've started to see that spread. Um, so we, we work with some other clients as well that have been involved in these um, processes the department's been running, have had a good experience and now wanting to replicate that in their organizations. Um, I think probably the other maybe challenge, and um, Paul mentioned this before, which is that outreach. So making sure that you can bring diverse voices into um, co-design, but especially in this space, being trauma-informed. The people that you're bringing into um, co-design and expecting them to share power with people that have previously taken it away from them um, means that the actual experience of co-design may um, create or trigger trauma and so really one of the key strategies there is again being really well prepared prepared for also not being able to always control everything um, but making sure that you're really um, cognizant of, of and being trauma informed in the way you go about co-design. Alex what are your reflections on in the design of these processes and your involvement in these processes? What Michelle mentioned before it really comes down to um, helping kind of understand power and privilege especially in, in this and, and how we how we walk into these environments and set the conditions to be able to really create a space where people do feel safe and, and can genuinely and genuinely participate in this process, which is what Karen kind of alluded to. I think so that's that's one thing is really reflecting those mindsets. And then and then I think really um, some of the other things is just building on those capabilities that Karen talked about is really around the design, the the design skills and helping to grow that capability with people, um, whether that's within the department, whether that's service providers, whether that's people with lived experience, really giving them the opportunities to be able to um, be part of, you know, the, that design process of, um, it might be synthesis, it might be facilitation, it might be um, going out and testing ideas out in community um, without us, you know, and we, and we can support and provide kind of the space and the avenues and the, and the context to be able to do that really well. Um, so I think it's really about that that coaching and capability building, as, as Karen kind of mentioned, um, which I think are really important in, in making sure that co-design is a really safe and meaningful um, process. Paul, from your perspective, what were some of the outcomes that you wanted to get out of your work with today in terms of using co-design as a tool? Well, I think there were certainly uh, two, two key outcomes. One was to get a good outcome from the, the initiative itself. And so that was supporting... Um, uh, the, an adaptation of a program called Hospital Outreach Post-Suicidal Engagement, which has the lovely acronym of HOPE, um, and to take what was, uh, was a successful program but understand how it could be applied with a youth cohort. Um, so being able to get the youth voices in to understand uh, their own experiences and their own needs and expectations was obviously a key part of it. Um, but from my perspective, it was also a test case. It was what do we need to do this successfully? 
what tools do we need? What processes do we need to understand it that are necessary to, to do the work well? And how do we help to make sure that the organisational or the institutional background to support this work is there? Um, and some of that comes from sort of getting that authorization and the permission to, to do the work, but also to allow some of those changes in terms of the power structures that have been mentioned a couple of times already. The power dynamics are key. And if, if they're not managed in the right way, you can really undermine the process. Um, so really what, what the, the opportunity of doing this um, as part of the in Royal Commission's interim report recommendations, responding to those, was we got a, a little bit of a, a pilot opportunity to see what would need to happen. And we've been able to take that and build it into a, a much greater, a, a much larger program now that we're implementing the final report recommendations as well. Michelle, what are some of your perspectives on how that co-design work has involved families, carers and supporters and the sort of outcomes that it's created? Well, prior to the release of the Royal Commission's interim report, genuine co-design within government and more broadly was very limited. So the Royal Commission has provided the imprimatur to utilise co-design more routinely. So this has allowed family carers and supporters issues to be incorporated more systemically into the mental health reforms. Just referring to Paul's um, mention of the Child and Youth Hope Program, the co-design processes that were attached to, to that actually allowed families, carers and supporters of people who have uh, experienced suicidality to, for their perspectives to be incorporated in the design aspects of that program and, and it's with really great outcomes actually. Um, it's important to remember too that uh, with, with co-design uh, and, in, and incorporating the views of, say, families, carers and supporters, that it, it's not a homogenous group. And one of the things that co-design um, examines is the, the broad spectrum of views within that particular group and allows for others too to, to appreciate that there's more than one view and, in fact, there's a, it, it's a, on a continuum really of the type of views that families and carers hold. Paul, you will have seen public servants being introduced to the idea of co-design across your career in the sector. From your experience, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that public servants have about the co-design process and what it can actually do? There's obviously a range of different contexts in which it can be brought forwards. I think that there's probably a few sort of conflicting views that might fall into the, to this space. One of which is there's there's not enough time to do it and that because there's a there's a tight schedule and co-design requires you know a, a you know a good pathway in that there's no opportunity to do some of this work i think mosh touched on this a little bit earlier i think it may mean that there's not time to do deep and involved co-design that that takes many months to sort of implement but it doesn't mean that there aren't creative approaches that you can use to engagement that give you some of the benefits on the way through so it may not meet all of the parameters of good co-design but there are opportunities to bring principles of co-design into other forms of engagement the other of course is the flip side of that is is that you can do co-design in short periods of time and rushing through it so it does need appropriate pre preparation it does need due consideration of the needs of the people that are going to participate in the project and i think that's one of the learnings that we've been having by doing this on multiple occasions now is what are the right kinds of foundations that you need to make this work effectively so 
making sure that you are both aware of those and are able to sort of follow through on doing some of those things, doing recruitment in the right way, onboarding people in the right way, making sure you create the safe spaces for participants, for facilitators. Those things are really important. So it's co-design is something that does require skills and expertise and, and a, a thoughtful approach to it. Let's go to that question of skills and expertise because it gets to this question of capability within the sector. Michelle, what are your what are the sorts of skills and capabilities that you think public servants need to be able to succeed working successfully with co-design? I think one of the key capabilities or attitudes perhaps is being prepared to not know things and sit in the grey, appreciate that we don't know everything and that's part of the, the process. Co-design allows us to unearth things that we may have not even thought of before that haven't come up in other traditional ways of making decisions. So for public servants, um, having an open mindset, I think, is really important, but also valuing lived experience perspectives, and that sounds like something that would be automatic, but it's not because it's not it's not traditional to value lived experience perspectives. They haven't lived experience, people with lived experience haven't always been involved in decision making. So you don't naturally go to them to hear their views. It's something you have to be intentional about. The other thing is to, you know, to access things like grey literature and other non-traditional forms of evidence rather than going to the um, you know, the gold star. Uh, types of randomised controlled trials and things like that to to actually broaden uh, your knowledge about what's out there already and what's already known. It also involves new ways of working, so being prepared to change things up and do things differently. And, and leaning, I think, leaning into curiosity and being prepared to test assumptions all along the way. Paul, do you think the sort of skills and capabilities needed for successful use of co-design, the skills and capabilities Michelle's just uh, sort of outlined, are they different to the sorts of skills the sector's traditionally developed or recruited for? Uh, absolutely. There's a huge shift, I think, that's that's required around that. So certainly the the notion that you have to be willing to go into uncomfortable spaces is is a thing that you know people need to be become ready for introducing people into uncomfortable spaces if they're not ready for it will just lead to pushback and and rejection i think a little bit but i think the key element of it is that it's in you know in some ways this is a riskier and a more innovative approach in some ways so you are going to encounter problems along the way and that is our experience we encounter problems doing this work it doesn't go without hiccups it doesn't go without um you know people uh, experiencing strong emotions and for for us having to deal with those and and make sure that we take the right steps when when it does occur and that's what I think we've built up over time is we've started to see where some of the risks are and so treating the whole co-design experience itself as a learning process that allows us to recognize what we need to do at the beginning to make it safe and what to do when things do go wrong and how to manage and then share that information because it's all good and well for something to go wrong on one project. But if you don't let other people know about that, if you try to hide it, then you just increase the risk of it happening again. But if you can share it, you're really you're going to help manage that risk into the future. And I think that's probably one of the bigger shifts for, for public servants is sort of being, being confident, like Karen referenced, being confident to go into these spaces and to make mistakes, but to be able to learn from those mistakes and then 
do things differently as a consequence. Michelle, I want to just go back to an issue that you flagged, I guess, earlier. One of the challenges of working with the users of mental health services has been people's prior experience of those services, which may often have been quite negative. Given that experience, how important is it for co-design processes to have a sense of being run by an outside group? Or do you think they can be run successfully by the providers of those services? How much do you need some sort of independent third party? Outside groups can be perceived as being more objective and less connected to maintaining the status quo. They can also help to facilitate the process and help uh, increase capacity and capability for service providers to do co-design well. So the coaching can be really critical. However, providers of services can can run co-design processes effectively if they can demonstrate trustworthiness and be prepared to share their power and privilege with the voices of those who are closest to the problem and who are impacted by the services that are provided. Let's go back to the discussion about risk then. Paul, you mentioned this, you sort of touched on this just before. I guess risk is risk management's an area that public servants and political leaders are, are often very focused on. What are some of the risks for public servants in using co-design processes and, and how do you mitigate those risks? Yeah, so I think one of the, the key risks is doing it badly. Um, and that's something that that we need to be aware of as we're sort of identifying co-design as an appropriate approach to move forwards. Um, trying to do things in timeframes that it doesn't fit into, setting expectations around participants that can't be met, not shifting the ability to adjust power dynamics in the room. Like if those those things can't be met, then then the approach won't be successful. And that's not what we're trying to sort of introduce into our into our reform space. And we don't think it's the way to achieve the better outcomes that we're that we're seeking on the way through. I think within that context, again, the risks are for the people involved as well, right? So as Mosh said at the very beginning, Alex said at the beginning, these are people that are involved in these processes and especially in the in the mental health context in which we're applying it, these are really sensitive experiences that, that people are often bringing into these environments and, uh, and it can be really challenging. It can be really difficult to hear them. It can be uh, challenging if, if questions are asked in the wrong way or if people feel like they're being backed into the corner in how they might respond to things. So I think making sure that you sort of understand where those kinds of risks come from in, in the actual environment themselves is really important because that's how you sort of set it up, set the right expectations to let people know, you know, how it will be managed and what you can do outside of the room as well to, to deal with things that might occur inside the room. So I think as we get better at it, we learn to manage these risks, but we can't remove them altogether. And so it is it is a, a matter of being able to sort of understand where the mitigations come from and having them in place. Michelle, I'm interested in your view about risk risk management in this world, particularly because I would imagine that families, carers, supporters, this is an issue about their lives and their deeply personal lives. How do you manage expectations, I suppose, or, or set realistic expectations about what co-design processes can actually can actually deliver? That's a really interesting question and I might reframe it a little bit in that perhaps we need to try and meet the expectations 
of our co-design is a bit more effectively and that is providing you know compassionate empathic spaces so that people feel safe to contribute that can be sometimes a problem with people come into a into a space and they've never been part of this type of process before and it just feels so alien to them and so you know uncomfortable that they don't have a good experience and then they walk away really quite unhappy about it so we we need to provide that safe space but having said that too sometimes uh, managing people's expectations about their involvement I think is it's sometimes difficult if when people expect maybe all of their contributions will be taken up in uh, in the work going forward and that's not always possible because they'll often be conflicting views so that's that's a difficult thing to manage but I think if people can see themselves somewhat in the outcomes and feel that their contributions made a difference, that's that's a really significant thing that we can do. My final question really, I suppose, is, is, is looking forward, uh, looking more broadly. Co-design is clearly a tool that can be used in a wide range of environments and challenges. I'm wondering, based on your experiences, for all of you, in the work that you've done with co-design in this particular world with the Royal Commission recommendations. Are there other areas of public policy where you think co-design could be brought in and could be used more widely to make a real difference? Karen, would you like to, you're not working in public public service, is there there an area where you think co-design could be more widely used Mm -hmm. or would actually change, change the way we think about government services quite dramatically? Yes, so I have been a public servant, which I think is actually what brings me, has brought me, I guess, to human-centred design and and co-design as a methodology. I think I I did work in health for a number of years and when I was working there, it's just really interesting how different problems have have an effect on each other. If you have mental health uh, needs, you are, over time, likely to potentially have higher other chronic illness So there's social determinants and, you know, if you don't get help at that point in time, then maybe you are going to struggle, struggle to hold down a job. And then maybe that's going to mean that you've got no money and maybe that's what makes you homeless. And maybe then that's what creates the next issue with, with alcohol and drugs. And so maybe that's just like kind of the the potential for, you can see how things start to escalate. And so I think that understanding it from that human's perspective, like what do I need to be a healthy, well person you can start to see how the policy space that I just listed by just, you know, kind of showing a ripple effect of of, of the potential um, for how one problem creates another problem. That policy space spans really broad aspects of government across federal, local and and state and also the not-for-profit area as well. So I definitely think that co-design can be used to help people, put people at the centre of their needs for whatever problem they're experiencing and whatever policy in whichever department is going to solve that. And again, what co-design can do as well is bring the right people into the room. So, you know, if it's a department at the moment, if we're working with a department, but that crosses into, uh, you know, for example, moving from a justice-led response to a health-led response, well, then someone from Victoria Police or a policeman should be in the room as well, not just people from the mental health sector. So I I do think that co-design can help to... um, meet people's needs more effectively across the full spectrum of problems they experience and the policies that aim to solve them. Michelle, are the perspectives you, where you, places where you think yeah, co-design would be a much more useful tool to be using there than our traditional systems? 
I think co-design can be used anywhere with where people with little or no power are affected by other people's decisions, other, you know, public policy areas where people make assumptions about what those decisions should be. Will it be useful to use co-design to actually test those assumptions, take the time to actually explore the areas more broadly, involve the people who are directly affected by the, the public policy that's um, enacted? There are areas in our public policy, uh, in our in our departments and in, in government, where people think the answers are really straightforward, and that that something like co-design wouldn't help them in any way. But I would challenge that thinking and ask people to be more curious, be more open-minded, think think it, could there possibly be another way of doing this, and how could we uh, learn more about it? And that would be from from people who are directly affected. Alex, are there types of areas where you think co-design has a greater role to play? I might take a bit of a different slant to that, Nick. And I think the thing that is really interesting and bringing it back to the process and the experience that people have through it, I think one of the things that I see co-design doing on the ground is, and especially we've started to see this really strongly in the last six months, is those that have been part of these processes. And we've had, you know, hundreds of people come through, but those who are in it really dedicated to the process and in it their confidence is growing they're building new skills it gives them you know we hear people that have come through being like this has totally changed and shifted the confidence that i have within myself to be able to either participate more with the services that they may need to interact with or have the confidence to be able to actually potentially think about a new career for them that might be within working on designing these systems and there are people now reaching out to us you know how do I get involved more in this? How do I be a partner in this more so? Because, and that's that's just the personal individual level that I think co-design, the power of co-design can have is actually lifting people up and totally shifting, you know, their own dynamic and their own confidence um, and giving them the power back to be able to really build it into their lives. So I think that's been something that has been a really special uh, note to come out of this and I think where co-design can really take into the future. Paul, based on your own experiences and what you've what you've heard everyone else say now, what what do you think the future for co-design in the public sector is? Yeah, look, I think all of the things that have just been mentioned are absolutely true and I think the direction that that I see it bringing some real value in is the way that it can change that thinking and mindset inside government about how we do our work, certainly bringing a lot more humility to the table when we do engage with people, recognising that we don't need to know all of the answers and that we can co-create some of those answers together, but also changing the culture and expectations among the leadership about how and when it could be used and getting people to feel a little bit more comfortable in, in aspects of sharing power. So sharing power at different levels in an organisation, sharing power with stakeholders, sharing power with participants in processes. I think there's a lot to be learned through that kind of process as well that could be really helpful for us. Well, Karen, Alex, Michelle, Paul, thanks so much for being part of this discussion today. brings us to the end of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Karen Gallagher and Alex Mashevelis are involved in at Today, you can reach them at www.today.design. Note the slightly different address. 
There's also a link to a useful summary of the final report of the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system and a summary of some of the key achievements in mental health reform in the 18 months since its release in this program's show notes. This podcast was produced by Ipa Victoria, and if you'd like to find out more about the wide range of events and professional development opportunities we provide, you can find us at www.vic.ipaa.org.au. I'm Nick Basto, and thanks for listening.